Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1931 Charlie Chaplin film City Light. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm warm. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> well, it is very cold, uh, cold here. Um, this was, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I am curious. I'm going to start with the, the, with the typical history question. Um, what is your history? I'm going to give you sort of three directions you can go with this and you can pick whatever direction you want to go. What is your history with this film specifically? Or what is your history with Charlie Chaplin? Or what is your history with silent films? Yeah, I'm going to pick the last one because that's, to me, that's the most interesting answer. Um, for a number of years, when our kids were younger, my wife and I hosted uh, students from Japan. And when you have international students, especially when there's a language uh, barrier, it kind of limits what you can do. You know, so like parlor games, uh, things like dominoes were great because there's no language involved. Um, but, you know, so we we're trying to think about what films would work. And that's really when we started watching silent films, including, including Charlie Chaplin, because, and of course, that's the whole reason Chaplin, well, it's one of the reasons Chaplin resisted talking was he felt that it would um, diminish or eliminate the, quote, the universality of the silent film. So that was my experience. And the other interesting thing about the silent film humor is because it is physically based to a large extent, not that there isn't some psychological and emotional elements, but most of the humor is physically based which means that it tends to transcend cultures and it tends not to date. So a lot of the humor in 1931 is still, I mean, I, I laughed a lot. I mean, a lot of what was humorous 90 years ago is still humorous and humorous across cultures by and large. Well, that makes sense because there's not, they're not making like specific political references or things like that. And you can look at this movie and think, okay, 1931, early great depression, but you don't need to have that even, you know, even that context to, to sort of understand the, the humor and find the joy that's in this movie. Right. And there's, you know, there's, there's no, you know, there's no significant puns. I mean, you could argue there's some visual satirical commentary, the peace and prosperity statue being unveiled with the tramp sitting in on it, of course. And one thing I should mention, mention Sam about the, the lack of really a reference to the depression uh, Chaplin started filming it in 28. Um, oh, true. It took him almost two years to film, but really was conceived in a pre-depression mode. So that's why you know, people may wonder, 31, why, why, why is there a millionaire running around? He doesn't appear to have been affected by the stock crash. Uh, so that's why. Yeah. Um, I will say my history with with Chaplin. The only, I think, the only other thing I've seen of his uh, was Modern Times, and I saw this in a very specific uh, setting. Uh, I was a, a sophomore in college, and I was taking a course uh, with G.W. Carlson um, called The Modern World, and he had us watch Modern Times. Now, I need to say that again. I was a sophomore in college, which means I wasn't sleeping much, and we started watching the movie at I think eight in the morning. So my, my, the bulk of my memory of modern times was that it was very long and tedious. Like the humor was, the humor felt tedious there. So when I came into to starting this, I was a little nervous of like, oh, maybe the, maybe like Chaplin films are just, the humor is a little tedious. And I was amazed how much I didn't feel that way with this. It felt like, I mean, there were a couple of bits where it's like, oh, they, they maybe went a beat longer than I needed. But it wasn't yeah. that wasn't my overall takeaway from this. It actually felt like it 
like this, like it kind of flew by and everything felt very light about it. And I really, I actually really appreciated that. And it was not what I was prepared for. I was prepared to kind of hunker down and be like, okay, I get the joke and it's going to go on for three minutes longer. And that didn't happen. And uh, my earliest Chaplin film was actually the gold rush, uh, which I saw when I was in high school. I think it was actually on TV. Uh, and, and that's, uh, that's got a lot of really kind of great, some of his really classic visual gags. It's got Chaplin and a fellow gold prospector and they're trapped in a cabin and they look at each other and they eat sea, uh, they eat sea food. Uh, <laughs> Chaplin is a big chicken, I forget, anyway. So, so, I, my, so my first introduction was the kind of the lighter side of Chaplin. Whereas Modern Times, he's getting a little, uh, a little messagey uh, in, that, in that film. Mm-hmm. So this was a, a 1931 film, and it is so clearly responding to the fact that films are now now have sound and films are now talkies. Um, so I want to get into that, but the question that I had because I the only two films I've seen of his are Modern Times and City Lights, which are both post 1927 films. How is this film different than say? Gold Rush or something that came before the jazz singer. Yeah, well, you're right. It it is a response to the talkies, and I think um, you know it has a soundtrack. For example, the beginning, which includes those vocalizations of the speakers, which is actually Chaplin himself, uh, you know, humming on a kind of a kazoo-like instrument. So, in a way, it's a response to and a criticism of uh, the talkie. Um, in addition to the issue of, you know, whether or not it would be a universal as a talking film, uh, there were two other criticisms that Chaplin had. One was, and others of the time did as well, one was the, the sound quality of the talkies wasn't very good. And that's sort of what he's kind of getting at with that, with that incomprehensible dialogue. You know, why have sound if it's, not, if it's not really that easy to understand? And then secondly, and this reminds me of a remark that, um, uh, that, that uh, is made in Sunset Boulevard, um, by Norma Desmond, uh, when she says, you know, who needs dialogue? Um, and I think that was also Chaplin's sense that uh, often the dialogue in the talkies was not particularly good dialogue. And so why have people saying words that actually don't contribute much to the to the film? So I think in, the, in that sense, and, and then of course, with a couple of sound effects, uh, the slurping spaghetti, uh, the sl- uh, sound effect, for example. So those are a couple of the ways in which you can tell this is very much a transitional film. But it also is one of the reasons why it took Chaplin almost two years to film it, because he was obsessed. Um, He said he had put himself in a neurotic state of mind because he wanted it to be so good, because he knew that we were so deep into the talkie era. Um, The last major talkie, or last major silent film had just come out with Garbo. Uh, Garbo's The Kiss was the last one that a major studio had made in that year. So Chaplin was really obsessed with making a perfect film. So, for example, that opening scene when, or one of the first scenes when the tramp meets the blind girl, 300 takes. Um, 300 takes. Uh, He shot 58 hours of film. Um, And he, he, he was always known that way for his working method. He was always, you know, kind of Kubrick like in that respect, a lot of takes or a song. But yeah, so he uh, he really he almost gave himself an ulcer trying to get this thing done because he was so conscious of how it was going to be looked at in comparison to the talkies. 
Well, and and I think it's definitely the kind of thing that that um, comes through in a in a positive way. Like this seems like the movie, a movie that is the work of a perfectionist. Um, that 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 the the way so much of this are long, long takes of very complicated physical bits, and it's not just Chaplin doing the complicated things, but it's Chaplin in concert with other people. I mean, if you think about that party scene um, when they're at the nightclub, like think of all of the things going on in there. And I was, uh, I don't know if I was reading something or listening to something about kind of how he, how, what his method of directing is, but he would basically act out everything for everyone to sort of like, this is exactly what I want you to do. And it reminds me of, um, uh, another director who uses a lot of takes like, like, uh, like David Fincher famously, you know, does this. And I, I heard a story about how Fincher used, um, animatics to show his actors. Here's exactly what I want you to do. Or, uh, Wes Anderson does this too, right? He'll do animatics of his whole movie because they're, they're, things are very intricate. And, and I think this is maybe Chaplin's version of like, let me act out exactly what, I, what I want you to do. Then let me act out what I'm going to do. And then, we're going to do this over and over until we get exactly what I want. And, and evidently when he had a bit sometimes that he was going to do, he would have an assistant act it out so he could actually watch it and see, and see what he thought. I don't know why he didn't film it and then watch it. But anyway, um, he was such a perfectionist. And this is partly because he and Virginia Cheryl did not get along. The blind girl did not get along at all. Uh, but he actually at one point criticized how she delivered a line. <laughs> even though it was a silent film. <laughs> so he could be difficult. Yeah. I, I, uh, one of the things about the, the, the sound effect jokes, and if you pay attention, there are actually um, lots of moments where uh, the, there is sound, which syncs up sort of perfectly with the movie. Like there's a spot where they keep hitting their head on the piano and like, you know, and so, so there, there's lots of sound jokes. I will say that that initial joke with the people speaking in 2021 landed so well because in my head I was thinking, well, okay, this is post-1931. I know it's a silent film, but when people got up to talk and I heard that sound, my initial response was, is there something wrong with my setup? Like why, what happened? You know, so, and I actually got up to, to like try to fix it. And I realized, oh, he's making a joke. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure someone sitting in the theater was like, what's wrong with the theater? <laughs> you know, like, like what's wrong with their sound system? Cause it does sound like, like a broken speaker. Uh, you know, and, and then and he really what he's saying is speaking is broken here. We don't need this. Uh, I, I loved that. Um, the and, and I mean, Chaplin also uh, uh, famously the score of this movie is his. And I didn't realize that in uh, earlier silent films that they weren't. I assumed that somebody wrote music for them that was performed. But but apparently that wasn't uh, was was pretty uncommon that it would just be the orchestras or whatever would sort of play. Mm -hmm. They would maybe have a feel for okay. Here's the kind of music we need to play here, but but this is pretty meticulously scored. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and it, it's all part of kind of Chaplin's uh, Chaplin's tour. I mean, somebody who really kind of did everything with his films. Uh, really, really a controller. Uh, almost, uh, in some respects, a lot like Wilson Wells, although Wells never scored his own films. Uh, another thing that 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 jumped out at me about uh, about Chaplin specifically, because you don't hear him, so you spend so much time looking at him, both in you know wide shots where we're seeing his physical comedy, but this also has some great uh, you know close-ups of his face and his sort of acting with his face. Um, 
I don't really know. I realized I don't really know a lot about him, but just watching this film, uh, just how charismatic he is, like 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 the the charisma, his charisma kind of drips off. Like I, I I wonder what it was like being in in the room with somebody like that. Yeah, no, that, 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 I mean that's exactly right. That the tramp is such an interesting character because it's both it's both the whole body and the the duck waddle, but then the, yeah, then there is the face and and the close up, and evidently he did have a kind of a magnetic personality. So very energetic. So if we think about the the character of the tramp, I mean, this I was thinking this this is a character that he developed pretty early on and and did lots of short films and other films with this character. So in, in a way, this is sort of a a movie franchise, right? He shows up in different places and does different things. Why is the why is the tramp such an endearing, uh, enduring and endearing character in the the early era of film? Well, you know, I think that. Uh, at, at one point, the Tramp, uh, several critics have said this, the Tramp may have been actually one of the most famous images of the, of, of the 20th century. Um, and, I, and I think there's an irony about the Tramp because the Tramp, in a sense, is on the one hand a loner, an outcast, an outsider. Um, you know, the only two people in this film with whom the Tramp has a relationship actually don't, can't see him. The blind girl literally can't see him. The millionaire can only see him when he's drunk. So there's a, and, 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 you know, he's almost never in the company of other people. So on the one hand, he's this outsider, this outcast. But on the other hand, he also seems to be a kind of man. Um, he's somebody that attracts uh, sympathy. And I think it's partly because of his resourcefulness. Uh, it seems like no matter what the circumstances are, he almost always finds a way to kind of overcome them. So he's the classic underdog uh, that you're always uh, kind of kind of rooting for. Um, and he's just, um, you know, this relentless kind of uh, indefatigable uh, approach to life. And so I think there's a lot about the tramp that we that we admire. And he's not he's at times seems to be victimized, but he's also not a victim. He continues to have agency in a sense, no matter what his circumstances are. Right. I, a lot of the things that I read about, I mean, not, not, not contemporary review type things, but reading about, uh, reading people sort of writing later. Um, there was a lot of talk about the kind of masked autobiography, uh, autobiographical nature of this film for Chaplin in terms of thinking about, you know, the, the millionaire as the drunk father, which, uh, which is, you know, part of Chaplin's autobiography, and another uh, another piece in the, the really good uh, piece on uh, Deep Focus talked uh, was talking about the relationship between the Tramp and the blind girl, and how he's he doesn't how he doesn't play sort of a romantic lead as much as he plays like a an innocent child trying to protect his endangered mother. Let that seems more like the relationship there than a romantic relationship, which also, you know, then, you know, people sort of relate that to Chaplin thinking about his relationship to his mother who had, um, wasn't blind, but had mental illness issues and things like that. So, um, I, I found that really interesting to think about, <laughs> On its face, I wouldn't have thought about this film as something autobiographical, but that that everybody seems to point in that direction. Yeah, you know, it's another one of those films. Like, uh, well, as I suggested, uh, one of the one of the subtexts of Citizen Kane is uh, Wells' relationship with his mother because she died when he was young, 
And I think that's exactly right what's going on in this film. And uh, first of all, the actor that plays the millionaire, Harry Myers, looks like Chaplin's father to hmm. a certain extent. Uh, and, and yes, there is this notion that the blind girl's uh, blindness is a kind of a stand-in for his mother's uh, mental illness. Uh, when Chaplin was only five years old, you know, his family was a music hall family. Uh, and they were successful until his father became so uh, such a uh, helpless alcoholic. So there's a story, Chaplin was five and his mother was performing on stage and her voice was, I don't know if it was a temporary thing or if she was actually losing her voice. Evidently she was performing quite poorly and so she got literally booed off the stage and little Charlie came, on, came in and, uh, and started to finish the song. And everybody was so enthusiastic, they, uh, they, threw, they, uh, they threw money. Uh, hmm. And he stopped and he said that uh, he wouldn't finish the song until they had thrown more money. Uh, which they did, and then he promptly took took the money off to his to his mother, um, and so she had actually died not long before he started filming uh, uh, filming City Lights. So that was very much in, in his mind. Um, I think the other way to think about his relationship to the blind girl, though, is um, one commentator says that the tramp is a Pygmalion in search of a Galatea. Uh, hmm. uh, that uh, that he wants to transform. The blind girl's life from what it is to something better, which I think is is a really interesting image. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I that that I found really interesting in reading about this film, thinking about that relationship with uh, with the blind girl, is that um, for Chaplin, this is his fav this is his favorite of his movies, and his favorite sequence in this is the final scene of this movie, which other folks have written a, written a great deal about. And apparently, at least in some of the stories that I read, the that was where this movie started for Chaplin is he, he had this idea of what he, of the ending and what, what the ending was supposed to be. And then basically came up with the rest of it to get to that, uh, to that ending point. And um, interesting, you know, that you talked about that the, the initial scene where he meets the, the flower girl taking 300 some takes that the, uh, the final scene was actually shot relatively quickly uh, within, within a day or two. Uh, and, and some people think it's because, this was the thing Chaplin had in mind the whole time. So he, he, he knew exactly what he wanted instead of, you know, as much as, you know, he maybe complains about, uh, about her not saying that line, right. Part of it too, is Chaplin, not sure exactly what he wants, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that in that final scene, he knew exactly what he wanted and then it just sort of came out. Um, and his sense was, it was, it was one of the few times where he wasn't overacting at all. Like it, it that it wasn't even acting. It was just like, this sort of pure moment for him, you know. Yeah, a, a lot of yeah, a lot of Chaplin's filmmaking is it kind of it's kind of an act of memory. Um, he 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 often was trying to recreate or capture moods and emotions from earlier in his life. And as you said, he actually had seen a girl kind of like the blind girl at some point in the past. And so that's that's in a sense what he was trying to convey. And I think that may be part of the reason why for him, the silent film is a pure form of cinema. Because in many ways, capturing emotions, setting moods, those are to a large extent acts. Those are those are a large extent visual acts. Those those are things that you can, can create in an audience without needing dialogue. You don't have to say that in order in order to create a feeling. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he why that was his preferred method. It's interesting uh, when you said I hadn't heard the the thing about having you know, seen a blind girl like that before and, and in, sort of in his memory, it actually makes me think of the the scene in Citizen Kane where, um, 
I'm blanking on the the business manager's name, um, where he Bernstein, where he talks about you know seeing this this girl on the ferry and how that stays with him, you know, and it's oh, like yeah. it makes me think of that. You know, Chaplin had this sort of moment, and he just sort of tucked that idea away, and it stayed with him, and then became the basis for you know partially the basis for for a film like this. So it's interesting to think uh, to think about that. Um, Maybe we could talk about some of the, even the sequence. So th this film has, you know, it sort of goes from episode to episode. You know, there are these kind of longer sequences. Do you have a favorite, uh, a favorite sequence in this film? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be the boxing sequence. I just, I, I just find, I mean, that is, I, I, I don't know how much time he spent choreographing that one and how many takes it took, but that the choreography of that, action is so amazingly intricate and inventive he just keeps coming up with different ways it's you know you know you, you you think early on oh the tramp's gonna pull this off but then it just keeps getting more and more complicated by the way the boxer in that scene was the last surviving keystone cop um chaplain chaplain likes to cast a lot of uh former greats from the silent area so hank mann is the guy's name so i but i just love that sequence because he finds so many ways um, to prolong it, uh, but in a way which keeps ringing changes on it. Because you, you, you said something very interesting earlier, um, Sam, and that is there are some times when it feels like Chaplin's taking a gag a little bit longer than it needs to go. Um, I mean, in fact, I, I think even in the opening scene, I think there's a little bit too much um, uh, of him on the statue. I think that could be a little, a little bit shorter. But I think the boxing scene is just the right length. I think the way the way he sets it up initially, you know, back in the dressing room, and then the way he actually executes it, and then the way it ends is actually unusual because the tramp usually finds a way to triumph, and that's one of the interesting things about City Lights. The tramp, the tramp doesn't keep winning. He loses the boxing match. He ends up going to jail. I mean, those are those are things the audience would not have expected because the tramp usually always gets away with it. Yeah, I gotta say, in in the boxing scene, uh, the boxing sequence, I loved as much as I loved the actual boxing match. I loved the dressing room scene before, um, just how he's the 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 boxer to his uh, to his left, how he's like got all the you know, the horseshoe and the rabbit's foot and he's doing all this. And he's like, well, clearly that's the guy who's going to win. And I'm going to do all that. And then that guy comes in laid out and he's trying to like get it all off him somehow. And I, and again, I keep, I forget that. And this is maybe the, the power of it. Like I forget that there wasn't any words in that because there were kind of complicated ideas expressed in that without title cards, really. Like it's about looking at someone and sizing them up. And looking at what they're doing and saying, well, I'm going to do what they're doing, and then and then seeing the results of that, and and like there's a lot of, I mean, they're not deep ideas, but they're complicated ideas, and they're ideas that are going on in the character's head, um, and it's there's no mistake, like it's very clear what's happening. You're not you're not thinking, well, I wonder if he's trying to say this. It's very clear what he's what he's what's happening. Um, you know, it makes me think about when you read a when you read a, a book and you think about how it's going to be translated to to film, if someone's doing an adaptation, especially a book where there's a lot going on in the character's head. You know, and you think, well, how that's the hardest thing to do. And it's funny because I think Chaplin actually does that really well. Like it's, I'm never wondering what is the what is the tramp thinking. Like it always seems very clear. Oh, I know what he's thinking, even if that idea. Uh, think about the, the one of the opening scenes with the scene with the. Um, the sewer grate that goes up and down, right? 
and yeah. and and what's what's happening in the foreground is he's looking at this nude statue, but trying to not look like he's looking at it. And so he's looking at this other thing, and and it's just like like that's again a, a kind of a complicated idea, and you understand everything he's thinking. And I just think that stuff is is brilliant. And then it ends with that great joke where the guy the guy is a little bit lower, and they're the same height, and he just gets taller and taller. <laughs> And and I thought that was such a that was, it was such a funny visual. I loved it. I loved I loved getting into his head um, without a word being being spoken or really even addressed. And that actor was, of course, Tiny. I can't remember his last name, but he is Tiny something. Um, you know, I'm glad you said that, Sam, because um, it's almost as though in in making this film, Chaplin wanted to do the most the most silent of silent films. It has the fewest intertitles of any of his films. Um, and that's one thing I often find, I, I sometimes find that a little bit obtrusive about silent films is that the number of intertitles and sometimes to me that can draw attention to the inadequacy of, of the genre because I think, well, if you got to use these many intertitles and clearly there's, there's an issue here with, with what you can't do with the image. But I think that it's, you, you really explain, ex express that well that the images really say so much. So, I mean, I could even throw away a few of these intertitles. I mean, really, it's like you could almost do this whole film with very few intertitles at all. It's so clearly expressive in the way he sets up the situations and the way characters react to, to one another. So it's interesting. I, I was looking at... Um at some contemporary reviews of this. Um, and I, I read a couple and both of them really leaned onto this idea of it's 1931 and Chaplin's putting out a silent film, kind of what's going on. And some of them were like, it's great. It's, it's such a triumph. Only Chaplin can do this. So there's sort of this sense of like, nobody else should try this. He's the only one who can do this. Um, and it's interesting. There's a, in the variety, uh, the variety review, which is, mostly mostly positive they're also saying like it's good it's not as good as the other things that he's done and they're also saying saying like well it's kind of a novelty it's like this will do well the first week but don't expect any kind of lasting success out of this i mean almost like they're saying like in the same way Chaplin's saying well this whole sound thing is a fad right he says it'll only last three more years um, mm -hmm. They're sort of saying, well, okay, Chaplin, you're actually the fad. Now, but what's interesting is this is the biggest financial success of his career, which I find yeah. interesting because he was wildly successful before this. Why do you mm -hmm. think in 1931, this becomes such a, such a big success? Well, there's probably a number of factors. I think one is because um, Chaplin's star was still shining bright. Um, I, there probably is a, a bit of a novelty element. I mean, the, the 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 talkies were, I mean, they were all the rage, but they still weren't making great films. I mean, there isn't a really great talkie that you could, you could think of in 1931. Um, and it's it's a really good film. I mean, so I think you know people may have gone to see it initially for the novelty, but then they realize it's a it's a really it's a really great film. And then of course, there's also the possibility, even though as I said, it doesn't reflect the depression. By the time it comes out, the depression is in full blast, and you have this downtrodden everyman figure. Uh, and so the opening scene becomes even more satirical than Chaplin intended, peace and prosperity. Uh, and prosperity was far away for a lot of people. So I, I think it became kind of unexpectedly topical in that respect as well. So in this, this movie has also increased in its view in 
sort of the contemporary world. And it was on the AFI list in 1998 at number 76. And 10 years later, it was number 11. So it made it, it made one of the biggest jumps uh, from one list to the other. Uh, why do you think that is? Why, why would that have even been sort of reassessed in that time? And this would have, would have sort of risen in the, the view of, of critics and historians in that way. Well, I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that, you know, in that time we'd had some kind of um, throwback silent films like The Artist, uh, you know, where I think there's this, this sense that, um, you know, sometimes that which is old becomes that which is new and that which is conservative is, is radical. And it may also be, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm just freewheeling here, but we have such a, um, an image-oriented culture it may be that there's kind of more interest in how, how can film work in a purely imagistic sense. We also, of course, have an increasingly global culture. So even though you've got, you know, English is sort of a global language, at the same time, the idea of a film that can appeal to people uh, without much, without needing the language, that may have been a factor. Um, and all along, I, I've been wanting to, 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 uh, uh, to reel off this list. It's the favorite Chaplin film, Orson Welles, Stanley Kubek, Jean Renoir, Woody Allen, Billy Wilder, and Martin Scorsese. So <laughs> for a lot of people, this is, and of course, Chaplin himself and, and, and his family. So maybe it just took uh, other people some time to catch up with those opinions. It is interesting, you know, thinking about, about this as, about Chaplin as an international star and this as a, uh, as an international film, because in 2021, if we're thinking about the types of films that work internationally, they are action films, big things like that. And comedy would be the thing we'd say, well, that actually doesn't translate well because we're so uh, verbal with what we think of. Like if, if you think of a comedy movie in 2021, you're usually thinking about, you know, uh, it being very, very much sort of about what people are saying and, and sort of less physical, uh, less physical in that way. One other, one other really obvious factor that I overlooked, Sam, and that is the rise of the DVD. VHS player than the DVD. Um, I was reflecting on the fact that I watched this film uh, on the Criterion, from the Criterion Collection. And so you have, uh, so when a film is available to be watched, you know, as I've often said, the only way I saw classic films when I was um, a younger person was if they were on TV or although cinema was showing them. But now you can see any of these, almost all of these great silent films uh, on a DVD. So I think I think that probably has as much to do with it as anything else. People are just walking a chance to watch it. Do you uh, do you think that that hmm, how to ask this question? What could we learn about uh, what could we learn about filmmaking from Chaplin that we could apply in 2021? What are there things that that he was doing that it's like oh. I, we we should get back to something like that, or or do you think or you think there are sort of um, lines that run throughout time to today where people are in the tradition of him? I mean, obviously not making silent films, but yeah, I mean, I I I, I certainly think you know the tradition of um, uh, slapstick slash clever physical comedy, you know, is, is certainly continued uh, with Chaplin. Now, I think you know, I, I think Chaplin's a reminder, as I said earlier, that that. Even though I love films that have snappy dialogue, you know, I'm screwball comedy person. I, I do think it's a reminder that um, film is lar is you know, is moving images that they are the movies, and so I think because Chaplin takes you back to the prime, you could say the primacy of the image. I think that's that's maybe the thing that people can most learn from him is remembering that when you're when you're making a film, you are capturing 
uh, images uh, and not just pair, not just pairing words with images and suggesting that film can film really communicates, I think, most powerfully. You know, even though I can think of, you know, great lines, I think in many ways film communicates most powerfully through those images. So, for example, okay, personal example, yesterday I had to take my wife to the doctor in a snowstorm, and I was complaining about this to my siblings, and my uh, sister's response was she sent me the still of Jack Nicholson at the end of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, those of you who haven't seen the film, it's not too big a spoiler, it's Jack Nicholson frozen in the snow. Um, and, and that image said it all. I, I didn't need any, any other commentary other, other than that image. So to me, that's, that's what Chaplin's kind of a reminder of. Absolutely. Um, did, you, did you happen to read stories about the, uh, the big LA premiere of this movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I love, so, so, I mean, the, the, it's in this brand new theater that has crazy 25. amenities. Uh, in terms of all these different things and about halfway through the movie, everything was going well. And about halfway through the movie, the theater owner stopped the movie to, to sort of present the theater to people and to point out these, all these amenities and, you know, these things. And, and he basically gets booed off the stage until they start the, the movie. Again. And I find that interesting because even that uh, is sort of he, that, that, that theater owner is trying to highlight, look at, look at all the, I mean, technology is probably not exactly the right word but like look at all the progress we're making in terms of making these theaters really modern and all this and and, and it's like that even i mean sound would be one of those things right and 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 i just find it interesting that 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 this movie has the power to say like no i don't want to be distracted from the bright light on the screen you know and i think that's i i i loved that story uh that 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 this had the power to sort of overcome the the bells and whistles and novelties that 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 uh, this theater owner was thinking this is what's going to make my theater successful. There, there, you know, there's another great story about I think it was seventy one or nineteen seventy one or seventy two. The Venice Film Festival did a retrospective of Chaplin's films, and Chaplin was the guest of honor, and they showed City Lights. And evidently, he was supposed to be there for the beginning of the film, but then he needed to get somewhere else to actually accept the award. But he couldn't leave. He was so. He was so enthralled watching the film that he actually stayed. I don't think he stayed for all of it or most of it. So uh, even Chaplin himself was kind of taken by it. That's fantastic. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I want to say, and, and, I, and I say this um, cautiously because as a former teacher of literature, um, I get very concerned by people who think that um, all great classic uh, literature or art has uh, Christ figures in it. But um, one of the ways in which this is structured and one of the ways in which the character of the tramp is kind of um, uh, underscored as a significant person is the fact that he is denied by the millionaire three times. Three hmm. times the millionaire comes out of his drunken stupor and, and denies the tramp. So there's a, so I think Chaplin, and that's another example of, you know, you don't need language to convey that. And it, help, it structures the film. So, but it also kind of deepens the sense of pathos that this, this character has. And that's another thing I would say about this film is it so brilliantly combines um, pathos with comedy. And one critic has noted that almost no exchange between the tramp and the blind girl is without pain for the tramp. Because there, there's the pain of um, he doesn't have enough money, or he can't let her know who he is, or the scene I love. You asked about favorite scenes. The other scene I love is when she he's helping her knit, and she gets a hold of uh, a thread from his underwear. 
So she's he's literally giving her the clothes off his back. Um, and that whole notion of the, the kind of self-sacrifice that he's willing to undergo uh, for her. And then, of course, you know, the glorious pathos of the scene when, you know, he says meaning one thing you can see now and she says meaning something else. Yes, I can see now. It is... Um, James Agee, the critic and poet, says he says it is enough to shrivel the heart to see the greatest piece of acting in the highest moment in movies. Um, so anyway, I, and I agree, it's, it's just a wonderful moment, even if the tear on her cheek was glycerin and not a real tear. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 and also it means in terms of the structure uh, that the film begins and ends with an unveiling. Right? It begins mm -hmm. unveiling him on the statue and it ends with him being unveiled to her and her accepting him knowing who he is. Oh, I love that. I love that. So what do you have for us for next week? Okay. <laughs> Hold on, Sam. Okay. Um, I have decided that we cannot revisit the silent film era without watching one of the greatest of all silent films. So we're going to dwell in the silent film era one more time. Um, and this is a film that to me beautifully embodies, uh, um, the remark in Sunset Boulevard, we didn't need dialogue then, we had faces. So Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1928, The Passion of Joan of Arc, um, which uh, is available in a gorgeous Criterion uh, restoration, uh, which is on uh, Amazon Prime and may even be on YouTube for all I know. Um, anyway, it's uh, one of the ironies, of course, is it's a film based on dialogue. It's based on the actual transcript of the trial of Joan of Arc. Um, it's an experience I think that we have to have. So that's what we're going to do. Oh, I cannot wait. I've seen, this is a, this is one of those films where I've seen images from it, but I've never, I don't know that I've ever even seen moving images from it. So I'm, I'm very excited for this. This, uh, this will be great. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending city lights. I was just delighted by this film. And uh, as you said, we're in a very cold snap here in Minnesota. So you need, we need things to delight us sometimes. And, uh, and, and, and city lights definitely did. And it, it, it sort of changed my opinion. I thought, I thought one thing about Charlie Chaplin and now I have, I have this to sort of uh, counterbalance my memory of watching modern times at eight in the morning during college. Like, like this is, this is a movie I actually, I really am excited to watch again uh, and, and really loved it. So we will be back next week to talk about the passion of Joan of Arc in the video store.